0: Hey there, listener. If you like what you hear on World Changing Women, you should join us at the Conscious Company Leaders Forum, where we bring together tons of stories like this live in person outside of Santa Cruz, California at 1440 Multiversity. Go to consciouscompanyleadersforum.com for more information. I'm Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media, and welcome to World Changing Women. Each week, we interview some of the most badass female founders in the world to get their insights on how they've built game-changing companies that actually have a positive impact on the world. Our hope here is to inspire and help people of all backgrounds who feel like starting a business or chasing their dream is out of their reach to reconsider. We'll hear the good, the bad, and sometimes even the ugly of what it takes to start and build something incredible. And we hope that every episode will leave you inspired, hopeful, and with practical tips that will help you along your journey. Welcome to World Changing Women.
1: Everything was by hand, everything was laborious. But when you build a business like that, my God, you understand that business.
0: Jane Rewand is the co-founder of Dermalogica, the world's number one professional skincare brand. Jane is an entrepreneur at her core. After immigrating to the United States, she pioneered a training program for skin therapists. She went on to create a line of skincare products to serve her students. And as she grew the company, Jane used business as a force for good. Dermalogica's success has helped to train and empower thousands of women entrepreneurs around the world. Jane sat down with me to share the story of how she got started, how she scaled, and the difficult decision to sell the company that she spent decades building with her husband. Wherever you're at in your business journey, you're going to want to hear this episode. So at this point in your career, you are probably sick of telling this story, but we (laughs) have to hear the origin story of Dermalogica. And so I was hoping you could take us all the way back um, to the beginning and around kind of the initial concept and also kind of what gave you the courage to make the initial decision to start a company.
1: Yeah. I'd lo- I mean, I'd love to say it was courage. It was a lot more naivete than anything else, which I think is quite a common thread in entrepreneurs. Um, one of my best pieces of advice is don't know too much to do it because you can literally talk yourself out of something because there's usually lots of rational reasons why you shouldn't. And the big reason of why you should is that you really believe in it and you want to. And and that's got to be your driver all the time. Because at the beginning, there's nothing else really to validate why you're doing it. I guess my journey started um, when I was very young. And uh, my mum, who was widowed at age 38 with four girls to raise, had been trained as a nurse and fell back on that training to keep her family together. So she said to me and my sisters, learn how to do something. So I went and got a Saturday job in a local hair salon, you know, shampooing hair. Fell in love with the industry. When I graduated high school, I went straight to study skincare, which was a two year training program with an apprenticeship and a great training. And I'm a huge uh, advocate for apprenticeship trainings because you're learning on the job with real people, real clients and getting really dirty. And then I worked in the industry and emigrated here in 1983. And my idea was I was going to work in a salon because obviously, if there were so many salons in the UK, there must be fifty million times that many in the in the states because everyone in America was glamorous, gorgeous, hair done. I mean, I watched Dallas and Dynasty, and everyone (laughs) looked absolutely fabulous all the time. Excellent representation of America, (laughs) exactly. So, what was the big shock was when I got to California in January of eighty three. First of all. There was a 10.4% unemployment rate. Mm. Secondly, so no one was hiring. Secondly, I realized very quickly that there were no skincare salons. There were what was called beauty salons, but they were hair salons. And there were a handful of skincare salons in Beverly Hills exclusively. I mean, maybe they were somewhere else, but I only ever saw them in Beverly Hills. They were all owned by Europeans. Aida Gray, Aida Tibiant, Georgette Klinger, Christine Valmay. And they uh, owned these salons and it was before anything was called a day spa. And when I went to interview with them, because that was the only place that I was gonna have the potential to be hired, I asked them why they didn't hire Americans because as I waited for my interview, all I heard were European accents. And they said, it's really simple, Americans don't know how to give a good skincare treatment. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, it's a four-month training, which I was completely shocked. I don't know why it hadn't occurred to me to check that out before I came here. But I realized very quickly that the big opportunity as an entrepreneur for me was not, I wasn't going to go and get a job in a salon. Yes, I could do that. And I could always fall back on that. I had my training. But the big opportunity was education. Could I put together a curriculum that would bridge the gap between that four-month training and the two-year training with an apprenticeship that I had received? And along the way, I'd also received, I'd learned a teaching credential to teach it. So I knew how to do that. So I thought, you know what, that's the big opportunity. So I, wrote, I sat down and wrote uh, out class, you know, class lesson plans and, and all the rest of it. My boyfriend, who's now my husband, my business partner, everything, Raymond got a job working for a skincare equipment manufacturer and couldn't sell a piece of equipment because no one had the training to use it. So it was like, you know, divine meeting of our parts. He's saying, I can't sell any of this fantastic equipment and I'm working on commission only. And I said, well, you know, I know that there's a lack of training. So I'm going to write classes. I will teach them so you can sell more equipment. And along the way, I think there's a business here. So in December of 83, we opened the International Dermal Institute. And the idea was we're going to offer education, sell education. Maybe I'll write a book. Maybe I'll record some videos. It was before DVDs. And, uh, you know, this is our business. And what then became the big light bulb moment was when my students started saying, what products should we use? Now we've learned these fabulous skills how do we, what product is going to match the techniques we're learning? And and what was incredible was there was no American skincare product made for the salon industry, which was shocking to me then and more shocking to me now. And so we realized the big opportunity was product. So in January of 1986, we launched a 27 product lineup that we developed and worked with an independent chemist to make and talked uh, a very willing contract manufacturer into running a very small run of product for us because the minimum was then 500 units of any product and we couldn't possibly do that. So it all is, all sort of worked and, and we were literally off to the races. And that first year of Dermalogica, there was such a gap in the market and we stepped forward with such a fresh idea, different name, different approach, very American, very Californian personality just didn't exist and we knew because I'm South African and I'm British that we were going to go international as quickly as we could because from an American base we can go international very hard to break into the American market from a small country somewhere else so we felt strongly that we had an international opportunity and um we did a million dollars in our first year
0: and how old were you in 1983 when you launched the institute
1: uh, I, I landed here. I was 24 years old. I'm, I turned 25 in April of 83.
0: So you're 25 years old. Yeah. You've just immigrated here. Yeah. You identify a hole in the market yeah. of education mm-hmm. and you just decide to launch an institute <laughs> and assume that that gap where the Americans are used to a four-month education and Europeans are used to a two-year education that you're somehow going to be able to convince the Americans that they're going to need a longer education than four months than what they're kind of used to. How did yeah. you do that, and how did you get your first students? Right,
1: so it was very, very fortuitous, because Raymond got this job working for a skincare company that made equipment, not product. Um, and so he said, I need you to come and teach classes so that in the hope if people learn how to use this equipment, they will buy it, and I will make some money, make commission." So I said, okay, great. So he worked for a company called Takara Belmont, oddly enough that were in Compton. We also didn't know that Compton wasn't a great area to invite people to come for classes at that time. And so we didn't know that either. So that was fine. So what we, what we did was Takara Belmont had a very big hairdressing equipment business. So they had, and it's before computers remember, so there's no such thing as pull up a database, right? They had handwritten sheets of customers (laughs) so we invited we literally sat down and typed up Avery labels for these customers inviting them to come and see the latest skincare equipment expand your business as a hairdresser because you're licensed to do both and come and see this great equipment and on a Monday which is typically when salons are closed I was offering a free class from 10 till 4 to demonstrate this equipment and explain to them why they were missing this enormous opportunity in their business. So, I wasn't targeting people who had a skincare license because I didn't really know about that yet. We targeted these hair salons that Takara Belmont had sold hair equipment to. And bizarrely, 70 people signed up for this free class. Now some of them were hairdressers, some of them though were hairdressers that wanted to offer skincare themselves and didn't really know anything because they'd had this four months training that only taught them really rudimentary basics and so quickly realized oh my gosh out of these 70 50 are skin therapists that we didn't call them that then they're cosmetologists who really want to just do skin so i said okay well i'm offering this class every every monday So send other people that you know. And the next Monday, just about the same people were there. And I'm like, wait a minute, I've seen you before because you flew down from San Francisco last week. (laughs) And she said, yeah, but I didn't even know how to wrap the the client on the bed. So when I watched you just wrapping, I I already have been practicing that this week. Now I've come this week. Now I want to see how you did the cleanse. I mean, it was so insane. So Raymond and I quickly realized, oh, my God, this is a huge opportunity for education, we're going to have to start a classroom. So we have no money. Okay, so carry on doing what we're doing. So I then go back to Takara Belmont. I say, okay, I'm not going to do a free class. I'm going to charge $10 a person. Because now I'm not, you know, I'm figuring this out. Okay, if 70 people are paying $10, that's $700 for a day. So that's pretty good, right? So I'm thinking, (laughs) this might be my whole career. I'll just do this forever. This is good. So more people came. More people came. We couldn't fit them in. We had to. I had to teach Mondays and Tuesdays, and quickly, within a couple of months, the same students who kept coming back. I'm not kidding. They would fly in from Las Vegas, from Phoenix, from San Francisco, and they would remember. No cell phones. There's no recording. There's no, they were taking with their cameras photographs of me giving a treatment because I was demonstrating the equipment. So then I said to them, "Okay, let me ask you something." If I was to do a class where I teach you how to do the movements, never mind the equipment, would you be interested? Yes. So then we knew, this is, okay. the gap is this. So we went back to Takara Belmont. We said, we're going to open a 1,000-square-foot classroom in Marina del Rey. There was no location study. We lived in Marina del Rey, and I didn't have a car. So we're going to open a 1,000-square-foot classroom. We want you to put in all the fabulous equipment, the electric beds, the trolleys, the lamps, the equipment that we're trying to sell, all of this. And we want you to put it in and give us six months to pay. And they did. And we hadn't got hope in hell of paying for this. It was $100,000 worth of equipment. So very quickly, within a couple of months, when Raymond was selling a lot of equipment to my students, we went back to Takara and said, we've had a new idea. We're not going to pay you for the equipment. You're going to use this as your showroom. Mm. Because right now, your showroom's in content. And that's not ideal for pulling salons from Beverly Hills and the West Side, which is the salons you want to pull. And a nightmare for people coming from the valley, because now we had a bit of geography because we lived here for six months. So we said, this is going to be your showroom. You don't have to pay me for any classes. You any time you sell a piece of equipment, I'll do the training for free in the showroom in Marina Rey." So we had the entire equipment. Gifted to us, basically, in order that we ran it as a showroom. And, and then I developed a full suite of classes. Mm. And then we developed Dermologica. So it was this gradual progression. And the way we found more students beyond the ones that Takara Belmont had was I, I knew because I discovered that there was a license for just skincare that did exist. But it was new and only a couple of thousand people had it. But I said to Raymond, we've got to get those people in class because that's the sweet spot of the market. So how are we going to find them? So they had... I was, at the, in the same time, having to take my own license here in California because you had to be licensed. And I realized there's a state board of licensing in Sacramento. So I call them up on the phone and I speak to this woman and I said, I want to do a class. I explained to her what I'm doing. And I said, and I want to send a postcard out to everyone on who's got a license do you have that mailing list? Because you must have mailed them their license. So she said, yes, we do. And I said, oh, is it public record? And she said, yes, it is, because we're a public you know, institution. We're a state board. And I said, well, well, can I buy that list? And she said, I don't know. No one's ever asked me it. Call me back tomorrow. So I called her back the next morning. And she said, yes, I found out we can sell you the list. I said, how much is it? She said, $25. <laughs> I said, I'll definitely have it. Thank you. And her name was Delphine Cathcart. And I've remembered it always. And every time I do an interview like this, I always say, thank you, Delphine. I mean she's probably dead by now but anyway (laughs) so I said Delphine um, that would be great so she said would you like me to print it on Avery labels I said absolutely (laughs) Delphine that would be wonderful so by the Friday I had this manila envelope of a label with the address of every single person licensed in the state of California which I dutifully hand wrote out every single name and address Mm. on index cards so that I had that record and used those labels to mail up my first postcards to come to this training room in Marina Del
0: What I love about your story, I think there's this like um, kind of toxic narrative sometimes with entrepreneurship that you have to follow a linear path of like studying business and then doing your MBA and then you find the thing and then you know exactly how to do it because you were taught how to do it in your yeah. MBA program. There's a formula exactly, yeah. and you guys just kind of figured it out very strategically, very um, you know, very smartly, like thinking about these. Steps just like that one of calling Delphine and getting that list. Get the list.
1: And, and, you know, I really, I built it the same way that I'd always built a salon clientele. So I'd worked in London. I'd emigrated to South Africa. already lived four years in South Africa before I came here. And I've worked in many salons. So that's the way you build your salon base. You can't sit around waiting for a client to come and say, hello, I'd like you to wax my underarms. It's just not gonna happen. I mean, it might happen if you are in a very high traffic area. You have gotta go out and find your clients. So typically that's what I would do when I built a client base. I would go to every hair salon in the neighborhood, whether it was in the UK or in South Africa, that didn't offer skincare. And I would say, I'm a skin therapist, I'm going to give all of your staff a free treatment every month and in return i need to be able to send a postcard to your customers preferably the ones that have perm and color because they're used to spending two hours in a salon and spending more money and telling them about myself and I would hustle to build my client base so I just sort of used that same thinking as to how I was going to build this client base and you just got to find where they are and then somehow reach them I mean it would be so much easier now with the internet think about it I mean I'm, I've still got those bloody recipe cards with the handwritten names on everything was by hand everything was laborious but when you build a business like that my god you understand that business mm-hmm. You literally understand the business because you have spoken to people. You have hustled. You have talked to people on the phone. I would call people up shamelessly on the phone and just say, you know, I saw your yellow page ad that you're, you know, an aesthetician And uh, I've got terrific classes and I'd love to have you in them. Mm. And so what if they say no? I mean, it's just the way I built a clientele anytime. So it was the same, same thing, no MBA.
0: And so speaking of the hustle... So there's this moment um, where you guys, you know, kind of start the institute. Mm-hmm. It sounds like for three years you do yeah. this. Yeah. Um, seems like it goes fairly well. Yeah. And then you also get inspired to start a product line mm-hmm. off of that, where I think some people might settle for I've got the I, I started an institute in three years, it's thriving, it's doing great, I'm just gonna stick with that. But you guys decide to build an entire product line as well. In your 20s. Um, so, yeah. I'm curious about that transition and why. What do you think it was that kind of um, was the catalyst for you guys to just keep going and keep adding more things to what you're already doing?
1: Well, teaching's very labor intensive. Plus, at that stage, I was the only teacher. There was no other teacher because no one, we didn't upskill the industry enough to create teachers. The first teachers I managed to add to to our group was one of my students, Laura West, who's still with us. And she had a degree in sports medicine. She was really strong in anatomy and physiology and owned two of her own salons. So she was like, you know, like a gift. And the next two are Trish and Sharon. I had to go out to London and recruit them in London and fly them out here on a two-year contract, which was completely crazy. But anyway, I did that because I needed people that could teach. So... It was very obvious from the beginning that everything we were making from the classes, we were ploughing back into the school. And it was going to be a very slow build to profitability and a very labour-intensive build to growth. Because there was no internet. You weren't going to be doing podcasts or live streaming. You literally had to do a bricks and mortar and have teachers in their teaching. So Ray said to me, we can't scale this business until we can clone you and we can't clone you so we this isn't a business we can scale we have to look to other ways to expand it and we both knew product obviously I'd worked with product my whole life Ray came from that background in marketing product and he said we're going to have to go to Europe or somewhere and find a product and distribute it so we thought that's what we'll do we'll go to Europe we'll find some French German product that people haven't really heard of yet but that's that's good. And we'll get this exclusive distribution rights for the United States. And we will use that as our product. So that was what we were going to do. And we'd already written off and gone to a couple of trade shows in Europe and written to some obscure companies in France and Germany and said, we want your product. And as we were doing that, a friend of ours who we'd worked for in South Africa, who was a classic entrepreneur known to pharmaceutical business, he came out just to visit LA and looked us up and we had dinner, and he said, so, you know, what are you up to? And we started telling, and we're so excited we're going to Europe to get this product. And he said, hang on a minute. What the hell are you going to Europe to get a product for you in America? You need an American product. And I said, well, it's easy to say there isn't an American product. We've looked at that. There isn't one. They're all hair, but they're not skin. And so we have to go to Europe. And he said, I can't believe what you're telling me. You have to go to Europe because there's no American product. What? Why aren't you doing it? And Ray and I kind of looked at each other and Ray said to me, can you write the briefs? And I said, yeah, I know the product I want. Definitely. I know that it shouldn't have mineral oil. It shouldn't have lanolin. It shouldn't have. I had this dream product in my head. And, 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 and uh, Solly, our friend said to Raymond, well, you can market it. You can write the brand plan. I mean, that's what you do His degree degrees in marketing. So Ray said, yeah. And so I said, well, we don't have a chemist. Solly said how how can that be defined (laughs) so I thought okay and that was it and it was literally as sort of serendipitous as that and uh, from the February of 1985 to when we launched in January of 86 we did formula to finish in in that time 27 formulas
0: yeah as, as I always find, like, Delphine and Sully, like, the, the people along the journey that you look back, yeah. and they're like these weird little angels that are put yeah. there to send you on a different path. And it's one person that can say one thing and one just it
1: And so it, that's informed my whole entrepreneurial career, because I don't believe anything's random. You know, was it Einstein? I think Einstein's credited with saying everything. But I think it was Einstein that said either everything's random or nothing is. So clearly, I, I believe nothing is. So... I really do try and have my, my antenna up all the time. And when someone comes across my path or even just a word or a phrase or even a color, actually, I, I try and have my antenna up that I register when it's significant. You know. And, and we have two daughters and I've raised our, we've raised our girls and I always say, listen, girls, when somebody walks in a room, You may not know why, you may not know what. And I'm not talking about, like, you know, sort of attraction kind of thing. Somebody walks in the room and they catch your attention, there's a reason. There is a reason. Find out what the reason is because it's not random. And I trust that and I've proven it to myself over and over again. So, yeah, you're right. Those angels come to us and either we don't see them or we don't listen or we don't give it any significance and we miss it. Um but I don't believe it's luck I think it happens to all of us.
0: Yeah. I get a lot of people who tell me that I need to meet so and so but if I get if I hear the same name twice. Oh yeah. That's when I'm like okay fine I have to meet this person yeah. because if two people 100% if, Yeah, I, have to.
1: I always say three times. I say I'm waiting for my third validation <laughs> but maybe I should go on twice. Um you you're right. It's absolutely true. You have to trust it. And it may not be for you. It may be for them. And that's exactly. good too.
0: Yeah. So looking back on those early days, um, is there anything that you would have done differently now that you have the benefit of of being able to reflect back those 30 plus years? You know, it might sound very trivial,
1: but I think it's probably because, you know, you've lived a life in an industry and lived this journey. I wish i captured more moments. I wish, you know, we didn't have cell phones, you were with cameras. I actually wish now, that I captured more moments on camera or recorded them or somehow, you know, I guess you think about it with your children too, you know, you think, but we tend to take more photographs of our children in our business, I would like to think. And so I do have some great shots, but I've got so many and I think, I cannot believe we didn't capture that in any way. And we were just too busy building the business. Um, But if there's one thing I regret, it's that and and i don't regret any of the business decisions not because they were all good ones but because as an entrepreneur you whatever goes south you know you derail a little bit you go hang on a minute all right let me figure this out and i have this phrase i'm on the right train stopping at the wrong station so this is a misstep but i know i'm on the right train so it's kind of like if you take a train well, i don't know to san francisco and you know you're going to San Francisco. So you visualise San Francisco, and that's where you're going. And good. Now you're on the train. You've got your seat on the train. You're looking out the window. And it stops in Santa Barbara. And you think, oh, maybe it's Santa Barbara. I, oh, this looks good. This, other people are getting off. I think I'm going to get off. <laughs> Don't get off. <laughs> you're on the right train. It's just it's the wrong station. So it's OK. So you got off, and you realise, oh, this doesn't look anything like San Francisco stand on the platform don't move stand there another train's coming get back on the train and carry on so I have this analogy and I and I and I trust that so you know I think that um you 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 trust it you know it's coming
0: so speaking of the train of your entire journey here bringing you up to date to where you are now I was just hoping you could fill us in a little bit on Dermalogica's growth the experience of being acquired kind of Um, And also, what what do you think attributed to so much of the growth and success of the company?
1: Well, Dermalogica's growth, uh, it's an entrepreneurial story. and, And it's a double down, triple down entrepreneurial story. Because first of all, yes, we were entrepreneurs. But the secret of Dermalogica's success is an open secret. And that is we were built by entrepreneurs. So we We had the product, we were selling to independent skincare salons who we had trained. So it was like this tribe within a tribe, you know. So we were selling largely to women because 98% of all professional skin therapists are women. And women own 64% of all the salons in the business. So it's the largest entrepreneurial engine for women anywhere. So these women entrepreneurs were buying domologica from us and selling it to their clients. So we were not at that stage selling to the end consumer. We were selling to the salons. So everything we were developing, marketing, sales, education, everything was around making that individual salon more successful. So I would say to my students, you are going to learn this technique and you're really going to learn it well because I am going to drag you kicking, screaming and biting if necessary to your optimum level of success because your success directly will impact mine. And we're in this together. I'm going to develop the best programs. I'm going to give you free samples, free bags, T-shirts, uniforms. You name it, you tell me. We're going to do it together because whatever you need to be more successful, I'm in. And I need you to be there for me. And that, was the, that is literally the conversation I used to have. And I used to say to people, are you in? Are you up for it? And they'd say, yes. And I'd say, then let's get at it. And so this idea of building the business was building their business. And I didn't really give, I mean, it sounds terrible to say, but I didn't really think too much about the end consumer. I was thinking of the therapist. So when we were developing a cleanser, I wasn't thinking of someone using it for 30 seconds in their bathroom and washing it off. I was thinking about the therapist using it in the treatment room. So that cleanser was going to be on the skin for about 10 minutes because each cleanse is five minutes in length. And it's going to be used under steam to activate it because that's how how we were teaching the technique. So my goodness, that cleanser can't irritate the skin. It cannot be irritating. It cannot smell awful when it's under steam. It has to retain slip and glide. It had to have all these tactile qualities that no one who was developing a product for an end consumer would even think about because it wouldn't matter. But we were developing these products that performed for a professional skin therapist. So they had to be good. They had to be great because that therapist was trusting us literally, that whatever they had in their hands and were about to apply to their client's skin would not only be safe, it would deliver results because otherwise that client wouldn't come back. So when the client eventually bought that same cleanser and took it home and used it for 30 seconds in their bathroom, they were like blown away. They were like, (laughs) wow, I can't believe this. I've never used a foaming cleanser that didn't have soap. I've never used a foaming cleanser that didn't sting my eyes. I've never used a foaming cleanser that removes mascara. Uh, Well, yes, ours does because it was designed for a professional. We literally introduced the double cleanse in 1983. You cleanse first with an oil-based cleanser and then usually with a foaming. And And I would have students say, I don't understand why we're cleansing twice. And I'd say because the first cleanse removes all the makeup and debris and the second cleanse cleans the skin. And that's how we're doing it. And that's how you will teach your clients. It's a double cleanse. So this, we were building... This, this journey, we were, we were building with the entrepreneurs. So as their business took off, ours did. And as word got out, word got international. And we went on international trade shows. And people had already heard about Dermalogica. I mean, they couldn't say it. They just call it Dermatologica, but that's okay. <laughs> because it was different. It wasn't called my name. It wasn't called, you know, creme de beauté. We didn't use the word beauty. So all of this was being disruptive before we ever talked about that kind of thing. And, and our therapists were younger in demographic. They weren't European doyens. They were, you know, ass-kicking entrepreneurs who wanted their own product. They wanted their own tribe. They wanted their own voice to be heard. And we gave it to them. You know, we used to have stickers, badges, that we'd wear. And all my students wore them. And it would say, it's my industry and I'm taking it back. Because we were fed up of all these Europeans that would say, you know, I've got this secret product that was made by my grandmother in Bulgaria, and I'm not telling you what's in it, and sort of bullying you and telling you how bad your skin was, and only they could save it. You know, I hated that whole elitism. So we, this, we, this was the mantra that we talked every day in every class, everywhere, and it, it took off. So, you know, we grew uh, within 10 years we were the number one professional use product globally and now we're in over well over 100 countries but all that was also a journey we opened in australia before we opened in new york which seems insane because here we were in Los Angeles. But first of all, Australia had a really well-developed skincare industry, really good professional industry. New York didn't even have a license at that stage. And we knew New York was going to be expensive to go in and really build the industry from scratch. So we had to wait a little bit. And we literally waited until New York got a license before we went in there. Meanwhile, we were in Australia and became the number one product in two years. So it was going like a rocket internationally because what we had underestimated was this huge desire, especially in, and still now, of course, but it was starting in the 80s and 90s for an American product. You know, this amazing thing was happening in California in the 80s that was like feral energy. And we didn't know that it was tech, but we just knew that everyone was doing something really cool. And so... Everything was like just exploding. And so when I would go on trade shows in Scotland or in Australia or in Malaysia and they would see it's made in California, I mean, it was like, you know, the holy grail. <laughs> then it must be grey, it must be cool. And it looked cool and it sounded cool and it didn't say for dry skin and it didn't say for women and it wasn't pink with a gold lid. And so we literally stood out like a beacon of white and grey on these trade shows amongst everyone else who was pink gold fountains roman columns (laughs) they were telling people you need to lie down and relax and we were saying you better get up and kick ass so it was a completely opposite message because we were marketing to the entrepreneur so we're a double down entrepreneurial brand because yes we were built we're owned by entrepreneurs but we were built by entrepreneurs so when it took time, you know, so then, you know, that, that just, we were on a hayride. I mean, it was just crazy. We didn't take calls from anyone wanting to acquire us. We were getting the calls. We were getting, you know, practically begging letters. You know, I would get that we used to joke, I've got the letter today. Oh, I've got another one of those letters where they want to discuss matters of mutual interest. <laughs> we have nothing mutually interesting to discuss. I would take calls from friends who worked in other companies and they'd say, look, Jane, just have dinner with them. Just, what's the harm? Just meet them for breakfast. And I'd say, no. And I'll tell you what the harm is. We are so excited about what we're doing. I don't want to give them a glimpse of how amazing the professional industry is because they're not in it right now they're all in department stores they're all in drug stores i don't want them to even think about the professional industry and if they meet raymond and i that's all we're going to talk about and they're going to walk away from the breakfast and go oh my god we should really be looking at you know the industry and they've missed it they thought it was all about consumer mm. they missed the thing that was really driving Dermalogica. and when we came to acquisition um, that was that the worst time in, in my career, the most painful time in the whole journey was not starting and it wasn't growing and it wasn't when we had no money and we had 10 people who were working for us and we didn't have a medical plan and they were all at our house eating pasta and drinking Shablis box wine from the <laughs> Save on Drugs. Those were all great times. The worst time was the five years that we agonised as to what we were going to do about the company. <laughs>
0: This episode is brought to you by Inflection Point Radio with Lauren Schiller. On Inflection Point, Lauren talks with women who are breaking down doors, from activists to experts to policymakers and authors. You'll hear honest, powerful stories and come away with inspiration and ideas you can apply to your own life. To learn more about how women can rise up, search Inflection Point with Lauren Schiller wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: So here we are. And what are we going to do with the company? So we didn't need outside funding. We didn't need venture capital money. We didn't need private equity or anything like that. We didn't want a partner. So we were either going to go public, didn't want to report to hundreds of thousands of shareholders. You know, we don't like working for anybody. So we said, that's not going to work for us as a personality. So it was either going to be an acquisition or we were going to, you know, bully our children into taking over the company. (laughs) And we'd made a promise to ourselves that we would never allow the children, our girls to come into Dermalogica because this was not their dream. This is a custom-made suit for their parents. Mm-hmm. And we thought it would be a nightmare uh, to have, for them to have to wear a suit that didn't fit them and wasn't made for them and try and make it look good. So we relieved them of the burden and said, you will pursue your own passions and dreams, which they have. So it was an acquisition. But it was five years of us saying, should we stay in? Maybe, maybe another five years. And should we open our own stores? We had a whole plan of what we would do to expand. And it was a 10-year plan. And we just had to look at each other and say, I said to Raymond, do you want to be doing this when you're almost 80? And we said, no, we've got to leave enough. Run- First of all, you've got to leave enough runway. And you don't know how much runway you've got left, right? Secondly, the other good piece of advice my mum gave me when I was 16, leave the party before your dress is wrinkled and your makeup's smudged. (laughs) So so I said to Raymond, all right, look, everything's looking good right now. We've got to leave now. The business is healthy. Everything's good. We're going to go. We're going to talk. So we talked to Skadden Arps, who were our attorneys who represented us. And we had a breakfast meeting with them and we knew people there and, you know, they told us the good, the bad and the ugly. And then we met with Mullis, who was the bank that represented us and got an idea of, uh, you know, what we'd be looking at. And they both said to us, "Okay, so you've got to do a book you're going to do a book and I said what's that and they said we're well, going to do a book which doesn't name the company but we've got to give all the figures we've got to give everything and we take the book out to market ray and i said we've never heard of anything so disgusting in our lives absolutely <laughs> not that's horrible that's that's like trafficking no 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 we're not going to do that we want we know who the people are that will want to buy the company there were eight and of the eight there were five that we thought were you know, in the right spot to want us and had already approached us. And of the five, we said, we want, they're already waiting for us and they're already watching us. And and with the big reveal was when we actually got into the conversations, they'd all been watching us for at least 10 years and they'd all had people in our company, which was kind of, I remember going down in the elevator and saying to Raymond, I told you! (laughs) Anyway... So, uh, when we we decided who the five were, we said, we want to do a whisper campaign. And, you know, our team said, of attorneys and bankers said, what are you talking about? But we're entrepreneurs, right? So, we said, well, we're not going to do what everyone else does. That's horrible. Um, We're going to go out and we're going to get a word to the CEO of each of the companies. And someone needs to speak to them one-on-one and say, look, we're not sure but we've heard that the Whirlwinds might be thinking about something. That's all they have to say. So we picked the five people. It was absolutely great fun. We said, okay, who knows who? (laughs) So Ken Mullis, who owns Mullis, uh, he was on the board with one of the suspects. So at a at a university we said, Okay, you you were doing that whisper. He's so <laughs> excited. He said, Oh, I'm so excited, this is such fun. Uh we knew a couple of people, I knew a couple of people, and so we got the word out and within two weeks we'd heard back from all five. And this was our request. Our request was we want to have dinner with the CEO, just Raymond and myself, no one else. And we are not discussing the business. We're not sharing any numbers all we're having is a dinner and the only thing we request is that you pick the person, the suspect, you pick the dinner and where it is and we'll show up and that in itself was really really revealing and the conversation was revealing and so to give you an example without naming names one of the one of the people, one of the groups, lovely. Every one of them was charming and and gracious and and very lovely. And uh, this group uh, flew us to New York, put us in a very smart rest, a uh, very smart hotel, took us to a fabulous restaurant with a tasting menu and wine and started with champagne. It was just all fabulous, 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 and nothing that really speaks to the Dermalogica brand or value system. And, and the first question they asked us, because uh, we got into a further meeting with that one, uh, was how quickly can we end the distributor contracts? That tells you everything. So that's OK, because you need to know it's about the value system. Now, if it's only about the highest dollar, maybe you don't care about that. So I can only say it's the things that mattered to Raymond and I. It was our legacy, how, how well would our staff be taken care of? How well would the distributors be taken care of? And how well would the salons that built us be taken care of? And we made that clear. This is really important to us. These are the big things, apart from a financial number. And um, Unilever, uh, Paul Polman, who's the CEO of Unilever, he flew to LA, a commercial. He took an Uber from LAX to our, our offices here. He came in the morning I showed him around myself and we brown bagged lunched it and uh, we didn't talk at all about product we talked about uh the future of Airbnb and I he just stayed at one in Austin because his son is a musician and he was playing there and we talked about that we talked about our family we talked about sustainability and the role that business plays in that we talked about how hard it is to report on first on quarterly earnings when you've got a long term plan, and he shared with us that he'd done away with that. He'd done away with quarterly earnings reports. We asked him the percentage of women on their board, and it was forty eight percent. We asked him the percentage of women that worked in the company, and it, he said he wasn't happy that it wasn't even, but it was it was forty nine percent. And uh, <laughs> it 1%. was it was great. <laughs> it was just so good. And and when the the offers came in. And we did have a bidding war, but but Unilever's offer, Paul personally wrote the letter, which our team said was unheard of, unheard of. It's always for mergers and acquisitions, but Paul wrote it, signed it. And in the letter, not only was the financial offer compelling, but they also wrote down that they would um, create 5 million new jobs for women in their supply chain. So that was the value system. And, you know, Raymond and I, maybe because we chose each other on a value system and then built a company based on that value system, it had to be a company that could honour that. Or we felt we had our best shot at them honouring that. And so it was Unilever. And I think it was surprising to a lot of people in the industry. Um, Yes, and it it would have been unlikely, except now we know, as they told us then, Domologica was going to be the cornerstone of their prestige division. And now they've added to that. And and now it's gone on. And the other great thing is um, Paul Pullman, of course, is leaving at the end of this year. We've been with him all the way through, which is great. But Alan Jope is taking over as... The CEO of Unilever and Alan's coming from personal care, and Alan was the one that negotiated our entire deal here in LA. He came, and he and Vasiliki Petrou, who runs Prestige, he was our guy. So we're really thrilled with the leadership going forward too. So it's been a great, a great circular journey to have lived and and seen, yeah.
0: So we've been through an acquisition ourselves a year ago. Yeah. Um. And there's like that moment at which you kind of hand over your firstborn mm-hmm. child. Mm-hmm. Um. And it sounds to me like you know you had these five years of agony. Agony. And then you found a a ideal partner. Yeah. Was there any when the actual acquisition went through and you kind of handed over your firstborn child? Was there any emotions that surprised you?
1: Well, we, we made a decision. I will tell you, the day of the acquisition was the best day at work ever. And the reason is we had put together a, a program whereby everyone in the company who worked for the company uh, got a share of, of, you know, of goodness, <laughs> uh, you know, based on how long they've been with the company. And, and that was great. That was so good because... Our team, especially those from the early days where we didn't even have a medical plan, it was, it was just fantastic. So to see the impact that that was having and to hear the stories, people that came up and told us, I'm using this, my child's going to college. I'm using this for IVF. I didn't think we would, would ever be able to afford it. Um, I'm using this, uh, you know, for a down payment on my house. I mean, I mean those kind of stories. It was just the best day at work ever. <laughs> so we had no feelings of regret that day at all. I mean, and I can honestly say we have not had any feelings of regret. It was time. It was like watching our girls go off to, you know, college and leaving home. You're sad that the bedroom isn't going to have, you know, their teddies in, but meanwhile, you can't actually wait to get in and redecorate it. <laughs> so um, it was time. And, and I think that's the, that any advice I would give to anyone looking at an acquisition Uh, there's no rush. This is your schedule. I'm so happy that we were not in a position that we had to sell, which is a heartbreaking decision. And I've spoken to people since our acquisition who've been in that position and having to make the best of a bad deal. And how do you do that? That's a different story and not a good one. Um, But I I would say that you know what built your company. You know what you want your legacy to be. And if that matters to you, that's going to count as to who you hand your baby over to. And if it doesn't matter to you, if it's simply something that you built to flip, that's a different kind of entrepreneur to the kind of entrepreneur that we were um, because we were in it for the long game. We were in it to build a brand.
0: So you've been acquired by Unilever, which sounds like a dream come true. I'm curious about what your current role is with the company. Mm,
1: It feels very much the same as as it has been for many years. Uh, My title is Chief Visionary and, of course, Founder, and I work with Dermalogica and with the management leadership team on what our direction is, what's our why, what's our big purpose. It's always the same. It's always about empowering our professional skin therapists to do better, making sure their businesses are successful, and upskilling all the time, so that people, and especially women, have opportunities in their careers that they didn't have before. So, I work ferociously on our brand purpose. I'm a thought leader in it and I speak about it. We focus on education, we focus on entrepreneurship, we focus on making sure that skin therapists not only have successful client bases, but if they own the business, they have a successful business. Um, I'm I'm working with the team on product development because products are part of that what product do they need now to make them more successful what should we be talking about what are the stories we should be pointing to what are the issues we should be recognizing and acknowledging and talking through with our business um, and sharing with our tribe and as a leader in an industry that is global we have a voice and we have to use that voice to be able to talk about you know the things that matter and matter to us so I, that's where I'm, I'm best used and that's where I most love to be. Mm-hmm. And it's just basically continued from, from when I did all of that before we were acquired and I continue to do that now. And right after this podcast, I have a meeting with our CEO and that's exactly what we're talking about for next year. So it's, it's kind of great to be able to still be involved in securing your own legacy and at the same time play a role of leadership in the brand going forward. So there's that continuity for our team and our tribe.
0: I was curious if there is a specific moment that you remember in the journey where you had to kind of take your leadership to the next level or a challenge that you overcame that actually changed you for the better in terms of who you are as a leader. There's
1: lots. I mean, you know, I can literally... But I think the one where I... I remember significantly, I remember specifically drawing breath and saying, okay, you better step up your game. Um, When we launched Fight, which was our, our brand purpose has always been around entrepreneurship, because that's what built us. But in 2010, we were getting ready to celebrate our 25th anniversary in 2011, 25 years of Dermalogica. And we wanted to codify our purpose and so we founded a nonprofit within the company called FITE, F-I-T-E, Financial Independence Through Entrepreneurship. And we partnered with Kiva, and we, I was now not going to be just speaking to salon entrepreneurs. I was going to be speaking to women that we wanted to fund to start or grow their own business in other industries. So these weren't people that knew me or cared about skincare necessarily, and um, our goal was to fund twenty-five thousand uh, in the first two years. And today we just announced uh, we we funded twenty-five thousand in eighteen months, but we've just announced our one hundred thousandth uh, business, so that's great. But what happened <laughs> astonishingly quickly? Uh, we were getting ready to uh, launch fight, and we um, we had a a company that was working with us to to message that and communicate that to the industry and outside of the industry as a message point of our brand purpose. And this was really a long time before people were really talking about brand purpose. And I received an invitation to speak at the UN uh, to address this idea of financial independence for women because in our messaging we talked about the fact that the salon industry puts more women into their own business than any other. And the first business established in, um, in uh, Afghanistan, in Kabul, after the fall of the Taliban the first time, was the Beauty Academy of Kabul. And the first business established in Kigali, Rwanda, after the genocide, was a beauty school. That's not a coincidence. And it's not because people suddenly realize they need to get their roots done. It's because the salon industry, being so predominating predominantly by women, um, is a place of communication and storytelling and narrative and sharing and touch and healing. And that's what it's about. And so we had all this in our messaging and the UN invited me to come and speak to that. Now, many, many years ago, my daughter was uh, three or four years old and she asked me what my dream was, because she told me a dream and she said, what's your dream, mummy? And I said, well, this doesn't make any sense to you, maybe Molly, but my dream is to speak at the UN on behalf of women and girls. So when Ban Ki-moon not only invited me, but he preempted me standing up to speak by endorsing fight and talking about the purpose of business, I mean, honestly, my throat was up in my th- my stomach was up in my throat. I had not slept the night before. I was so excited and, of course, nervous. But anytime I'm nervous, I always just say, Jane, you're not nervous, you're excited. <laughs> it's just adrenaline. I think I'd slept two and a half hours. I, you were not allowed to take any... Uh, phone in or anything I had no notes and I was invited to speak for 20 minutes which is a long time and I just as you know my whole thing is you just speak your truth even though your voice is shaking and I just felt this huge responsibility I've got to speak on behalf of the industry I cannot shrink it I cannot trivialize it I cannot shrink what we do it may sound esoteric to everyone else, but I have to talk about this idea of connection and narrative and storytelling and how important this is. And, and, and if you want to isolate women, maybe it's people, but I, own, I know women the best because I'm one of four girls and I went to an all girls school and I've spent my life in an industry of women. This is what I know. If you want to isolate and, 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 and diminish them, you, you separate them from each other. And I know that that doesn't happen in a salon. And I know the story of, the, of every salon I've ever worked in is an all-encompassing unit of forgiveness and love, and that's what it is, and I'm going to stand up and say it. And I'm gonna give the statistics and the numbers, because people always want that, but I want them to understand the why. And I did, and so that moment is the moment that I just said to myself, I, I've gotta up my game. It's not about double cleansing right now. It's about speaking out on behalf of women and the financial independence of them.
0: So we already kind of talked about the hardest moment, I think. Um, you said the most agonizing time agonizing. in your career was this five-year period. Yeah. Um, I always ask this of entrepreneurs. Was there ever a time in your journey where you thought about giving up? No. No. <laughs> next question I've been,
1: I've been <laughs> discouraged uh, as, as we all are in life different things happen and you're discouraged um, 2008 when retail fell off a cliff I mean it wasn't that you know it got dimmed the lights went out and we lost 1500 businesses in out of 6000 in the first six months 1500 salons I knew every single one of them every single one And I still think of the calls that I got where they called me and said, you know, Jane, we're not going to make it. And we still owe Dermalogica. We've got product on our shelf. You can come and get it, but we can't pay you for what we used. And they didn't have to. It was fine. Um, We stood up. Raymond and I uh, did a a live stream and a town hall here. And we promised our team, we're not cutting a job. None of you will lose your job we will cut programs before we cut people, and we will cut our salaries before we cut yours. You do not have to be worried. We knew some of them, many of them had partners who had lost their jobs. The aerospace industry was laying off and shutting down, and that's local. And, um, you know, we promised our team they would all be here. And we promised ourselves, we didn't care if we had to move families into the offices. I mean, probably wouldn't be legal, but (laughs) we would do whatever it took. And and we made it through. And so have I been discouraged? Yeah, that was, that was big. But no, never giving up, never, ever. In fact, the opposite. Those all served to make me want to do it harder, do it more, do it quicker. And I told every one of those salons, you're going to be back. And when you're back, we will be here, and we'll be here for you. And, and it worked out for a lot, not for all. But the other good thing was, because we were an international business, Losing that amount of our accounts in North America didn't impact us as much because we still had the UK strong, Australia strong, Europe strong, South Africa strong, Asia strong, because that recession rippled around the world over the next two years. And as it rippled across to Europe, it still hadn't hit Australia. And when I was in Australia in 2010... I was teaching programs uh, that we developed here in that recessionary period called How to Recession Proof Your Salon. And they were saying, you know, we're actually fine. Nothing's happened here. And I said, get ready. And it hit them and it hit them hard. And so we were fortunate enough to be able to ride that wave and ride
0: ahead of that wave to our other markets. So kind of looking back at everything, I'm curious about, top three pieces of advice that you have for entrepreneurs of which i'm sure you have a lot of advice
1: <laughs> i i do I, I don't i actually had like five and i thought five i was well, fine, I got fine. <laughs> so so my first my first piece of advice is leadership is all about leadership means you know you're leading a team below you right or around you leadership goes down whining goes up you don't whine to the team it's really clear don't confuse being honest with whining. It is not the same thing. You can't have a pity party. The team need to see you strong, stable, together, connected with a plan. Even if you have no plan, do not say to your team, I have no plan and I think (laughs) I'm giving up. You can, of course, tell them that you're discouraged. And, and you can have fierce conversations, which is what we call it at Dermalogica. But gripes go up. And if you're the only one at the top, you look in the mirror and gripe and whine to yourself. But they don't go down. They'll destabilize the team. And if you've got a leader on your team that is leading a team and is whining and complaining, you need to pull them in and you need to talk to them about it. It is the most selfish thing they'll ever do. You do not have, you do not have the the forgiveness to whine to your team. It's, it's gonna destabilize and they go home worried it's not fair. That's my first piece. My second piece is lead by empathy and example. There's always room for kindness. We had a policy, it didn't matter what happened. Well, maybe it would if they'd sort of, you know, done something shocking, but we never laid anyone off between Halloween and the last week of January. Um, it's not fair, it's just not kind. So unless it was, you know, grand theft auto or something in the parking lot, that was a rule. You lead by empathy. And an example, you should show that example of kindness. And it has to be authentic, you know, not fake kindness. Everyone can do that. But, you know, we can all spot, we can all spot the real thing in 30 seconds. And it's important because that's how the team will respond to you. Focus, focus, focus. Focus, focus, focus. Do not get distracted. It's so easy to get distracted, especially when you start to be successful. People come on board, oh, you've got a great skincare line, you should do a makeup line. Uh, No, we're a skincare line. Those are two completely different things. We'll lose our focus. Um, oh, you know, you should uh, go into a market that doesn't speak the same language as you and think that you can educate in that market. No, we made that mistake once. It was in Germany. And I don't know why we thought that we could do it ourselves and not have a German distributor who spoke German. But, you know, you always make at least one misstep a week. So that's OK. So you, you focus, focus, focus on what you're doing. Don't fall in love with your own PR. It is lovely to have the cover of the magazine, (laughs) but you have to stay humble. You can't fall in love with that and think you're all that, especially as you become successful, because people will tell you lots of lovely things. But you've got to know where you came from and you've got to know who you are. And again, and I mentioned this, know that you're on the right train and you might be stopping at the wrong station, but you're on the right train. Don't get your bag and leave stay on the train it may be going to exactly the place you think it's going and visualize that visualize it all the time and when you visualize don't just say i wish claim it as if it's happened see it completely detailed in as much detail as you possibly can to the point of detail that you feel it's foolish but see it completely detailed out everything every detail that you can put in there visualize it that's where you're going to because that way when you get there or you start to get to the outskirts you'll recognize it and you'll know your home
0: so i was hoping you could tell us about a life-changing moment that you've had on your journey
1: Mm -hmm. i made a few notes definitely the death of my father i don't remember it i was two but it informed my whole life because it changed my mother's life and that changed mine. And, I mean, it was the most shocking thing. It was sudden. And my dad was just a bit short of his 50th birthday. My mom was 38. So I know all the stories, but I only know them from narrative. I I don't remember them. And as horrible and hard as it was, it has informed my whole life purpose, which is about supporting yourself and being able to support yourself. So I guess that is a definite... Of course, both of my children. Um, It really is a lesson in um, how little pain tolerance you truly have. Just in the birthing process. I'm pregnant right now, so (laughs) it's good to hear. (laughs) I should probably not have said that, but there is always (laughs) help, which is good. And I will also say that the actual births of both my girls is just um, unbelievable, unbelievable moment. You know, people would talk to me about unconditional love, you know, when I got married. And I mean, that is true. <laughs> but when I, had, when I had my girls, I, you know, to completely unconditional love, you know, you'd take a, sit in front of a train for them. Um, emigrating to the USA, game-changing. I mean, I'm, I'm tackling issues right now in, in my private capacity around uh, entrepreneurship with a special lens on women, immigrants, and minorities. Uh, because we are a country um, built of immigrants, and Britain is too, f- forever. You know, Anglo-Saxon, those are the Angles and the Saxons that came. I'm sc- a Scot, that's the Norwegians, that's the Vikings, It's the Danes and the Norwegians. So It's foolish to think that we don't all rely on that. And so, coming to America, And then probably um, life-changing moment this year. Uh, We'd sold the company. We made such a good decision. We felt so wise about it. We felt very self-congratulatory. And uh, we had found our forever home in Santa Barbara, Southern California. We love Southern California. And we're moving there at the beginning of 2018 until we lost it in the mudslides. Um, and learned a mantra from my neighbor who I love and adore, which was let go and let in. Got to let it go to let it in. And I thought that is the lesson. That's the lesson that took this journey all the way through to here, which is, you know, you, the next thing isn't coming until you let go of the last. And it's so hard to trust it, but you must trust it let it go you know it's you know it's done let it go and only then literally as your hands let go and your heart lets go your brain lets go the next thing comes in and and you just see it proven over and over I talked about the recession of 2008 and I remember saying to people at that time and in interviews I would give I would say you know we haven't seen them yet but the Most fantastic entrepreneurial companies are going to start right now they're being cooked up right now we don't know who they will be but they will be and now we look at you know whether it's you know the ubers of the world and the airbnbs of the world and the snapchats and the twitter name them i mean they were all being incubated at that time and so uh yeah let go let in i'm
0: curious for you um kind of leader of this behemoth organization, what practices do you have for staying grounded and centered?
1: Well, stay fit and stay healthy. You, you have to because it's, it's a marathon. You know, you're not running a quick race here. So you've got to be fully fit. And that takes a discipline, you know. Um, so you've got to eat clean. You've got to love large... You've got to live big. I mean, it's all those things that we know. So, yeah, I have... So what do I do? I don't eat meat or chicken. I eat, you know, fish for this year and then completely plant-based, I think, after that. Not not because I feel so much different. I actually don't. Um, But I do feel more energetic and i look forward to eating which sounds like such a strange thing i get curiously excited you know about eating something that is you know farm to fork or farm to table or that you're you're growing and if you have the privilege of doing it which always leads me to another thing which is we have far too many food deserts in our communities but that's another entrepreneurial story in underserved communities um i do work out five times a week for me it's Pilates. I don't, I, I severely restrict the amount of time I spend on devices. I won't have a cell phone or a computer in my bedroom. And don't tell me you use it as an alarm, anybody, because we had alarm clocks and they still work. Uh, I, I do think it's it's disruptive and addictive. And I think it just robs us of a lot of of thought-provoking, intuitive sense of what's going on Mm. other than what we might be looking at. I just feel that strongly. So all of those have have kept, for me, it's always personal, but for me that keeps me strong, keeps me focused. And if if I wasn't fit, I just, I don't know how I would have done it. And, you know, one can't prevent, obviously, an illness coming that is no fault of your own but we can certainly try and prevent everything that we can have control of as much as we as much as we do
0: what is the most important thing in your life right now
1: love mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> love for those who can't see her she is holding up her shirt which says the word love on it yeah love
1: <laughs> you know love in your life it can be love with your with your pets with your people with your with your team, love your work, love where you live, love your city. It doesn't have to be romantic love, and it can be. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, uh, tough love, and it can be, it's all part of it. But I think you've got to love what you're doing and love the space you're in. And if you don't, and we've all had times when we don't, then you can't maintain that status quo, can you? You've got to make a change. Don't shirk the responsibility of making the change. Don't wait for the other party to make the change, to relieve you of the responsibility of making it. If you know it's not working for you, whatever it is, you you've gotta start visualizing what the change
0: is. Let go and let in. Love. Final question. Uh, What is giving you hope for the world right now?
1: Next generation. I think they're fantastic. This G generation, the giving generation, Uh, I have a 19-year-old and a 24-year-old and they especially my 19-year-old not that they're both not amazing but I think my 19-year-old is in the next generation below millennials I think my 24 year olds I don't really know those numbers but this is my sense of it because my youngest has grown up entirely with tech whereas my uh, 24-year-old did not grow up entirely with tech and I think that informs differently So, but they're both incredibly strident about making the world different. They don't moan about the world. They want to change the world. Um, They don't, they want to be that change that they want to see in the world. And they intend to make it happen. And every one of their friends that I've met intends to make it happen. They have a righteous indignation about what the hell we've done with the world. And I think they're right. So what gives me incredible hope is when I get the chance to spend time with people under the age of 25 and I listen to what their dreams are and I listen to what their hopes are and they have a pretty good plan of how they're going to go about doing it. And they have access to all the tools and materials that will allow them to do it. And when I when I talk to my youngest daughter about Uh, impact self-defense classes that she teaches. She's studying criminology at the University of Maryland. She wants to be in the FBI. I mean, she is on a mission. My eldest daughter is highly creative. She's developing programs, art programs, a magazine, performance art, you name it. She's creating it, all telling the stories that need to be told and pointing to the people that aren't being recognized and and applauding people who are living their truth whatever it is and when i see all of that happening and in on top of that we see all this conversation around gender and equality and uh, and me too movement all of it just makes me incredibly excited and happy and Of course, you can look at the stuff that's going on that will make you crazy. And there's plenty of that every night on the television, too. But I'm incredibly inspired by localism and how much power our mayors have in the cities and acting locally. You know, our nonprofit piece right now, again, in our private capacity, is called Found LA. And it's about small local entrepreneurs helping fund them and support them, uh, coach them and, and get them going that are serving communities that are underserved and are doing it with a purpose. And the appetite for that, for local entrepreneurs... We don't want to live next door to the Amazon shipping warehouse. We want to live next door to the artisanal bakery and the dog groomer. We want to live down the road from the florist. We want to tell our friends about this really cool small boutique where two sisters are making stuff and selling it. That's what makes us feel connected as human beings. And that is coming back. I feel very strongly about it. And our next generation gives me huge hope.
0: A huge thank you this week goes out to Jane Warwand and the entire team over at Dermalogica. The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media and is produced by StoryPop Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you tell a friend about the show. And be sure to subscribe to get the latest episode. Thanks so much for listening. A StoryPop Media production.